Well, if you have a Bible, you can open that up. We're going to be in Psalm 98 this morning. 2 Samuel 5, the Bible says, And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. What happened in that text is that God brought his enemies low by the hand of his king. In 2 Samuel 5, David drives the Philistines out of the hill country. He drives them into the coastal plains. It's this great victory for the name of the Lord. It is a great victory for the people of God. And so what happens after David's great victory? Well, he has a parade. He has a procession into Jerusalem. The Ark of God had been sitting in the house of Abinadab, but now it was coming back to the city of David. And as the ark comes into the city, on the heels of this great victory, David is celebrating. And so in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, the Bible says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so here's David just dancing and he is leaping before the Lord, dancing with all of his might. He's shouting and he just continues this as the ark is coming into the city. His wife despises him for it, but he says to her, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And so there was joy. There was joy in the victory of the Lord and the coming of his glory in the ark. There was joy over the Lord working to preserve his people through this anointed king named David. And there was joy in the people of God in 2 Samuel 6.18 as the king, David, blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Now, 2 Samuel 6 is not our text for today. Our series, uh, as you'll see from the art on the screen, it's not Christmas in 2 Samuel, right? It's Christmas in the Psalms. And we will be in Psalm 98 this morning. And Psalm 98 is not a psalm with a historical setting. David's victory parade with the ark, it's a fitting image to help us as we read this passage, but the the psalm is not about David's victory parade. However, the psalm itself is about a victory parade. But it's not a human king, it's not David that's being celebrated here, it is God himself, it is God the King, the one who made the heavens and the earth. It is God the King who redeems his people. It's God the King who will make all things right in the end. It's a procession for him. And as those who call ourselves the people of God, we should be marching behind him in triumph, joyfully, joyfully sounding out his exaltation because he is the worthy God and he has given us an even better king than David in his son Jesus. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Psalm 98, beginning in verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation 
He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and you have revealed to us in your word that you long for us to worship you in joy. And Father, for for many in this room, we have been trying to fill up broken cisterns that do not hold water and find ourselves to be unsatisfied with these broken cisterns. Well, the worship of you, Lord, is not a broken cistern. It holds water, Lord. We will be satisfied when we worship joyfully. And so, Father, speak to us now through your word so that we may be joyful worshipers because you deserve it. And it's what you want for us. And it's a part of the abundant life you've promised us in your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word again. Help us to understand it, to internalize it, to apply it to our lives, and to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Three points for you this morning. My aim is to show you what God deserves, what we must bring him as we consider the joy of Advent. Number one this morning, God the King God the King deserves a joyful procession of praise. God the King deserves a joyful procession of praise. Every week in our worship service, uh, Josh and Kristen, James came up and helped us with it this week, we have our call to worship, typically in the form of reading the revealed Word of God, and then we will pray together. Well, Psalm 98 has been used by churches in their call to worship portion of uh, the, the liturgy for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's because the entire psalm truly is a call to worship. In fact, each of the psalm's three stanzas begin with a call to worship the Lord. Verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song. It's a call to worship. Verse 4, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And then another call to worship in verse 7, Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The first call to worship in verse 1 emphasizes us singing a new song to God. The command for us to sing is one of the most emphasized commands that we have in the Bible. There are over 50 direct commands to sing. There are around 400 mentions of singing in the scriptures. And one of the most repeated commands involving singing is that we would be belting out new songs to the Lord. This is one of six psalms that entreats us as the people of God to sing new songs to the Lord. And then in Isaiah 42, all the people of God are called on to sing a new song to the Lord. In Revelation 5, in the heavenly worship scene, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are singing a new song before the throne of God. And in Revelation 14, the triumphant people of God are singing a new song that no one can learn unless they have been redeemed by the Lord and their name is found in the Lamb's book of life. When the psalmist says, sing a new song, he's not talking about new content. 
We're not going to make up new things about God that are not revealed in his word to sing to him. No. Instead, we sing the old doctrines. We sing what we find in the scriptures, but we sing it from a new perspective. God has blessed his people throughout the ages. God has always been faithful to his people in the old covenant and now in the new covenant, in his plan, in his time. He is a faithful, loyal God to us. But throughout redemption history, as we experience his faithfulness, we as the people of God sing new songs to him from our perspective. Each generation of the Lord's people should be lifting up new songs. For example, Psalm 97, Psalm 98, and Psalm 99 are all different songs, and they were new songs, as the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to write them. And if you read the content of the psalms, they're all very similar. And so there are new songs about the same self-revelating God who is putting his grace and his glory on display in creation, in his saving acts, in his promise keeping. And as we experience that as the people of God from our perspective, we lift up a new song. The content of the song, song is the same as the content of Psalm 98 or Psalm 102 or the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, right? We're singing the same good doctrine, the same, uh, the same core beliefs and the creeds and all the things that we understand as Christians that God has revealed to us in his word. We're singing all of those glorious truths, but we're doing it from our perspective as we lift up a new song to the Lord. The second call to worship is focused on making a joyful noise to the Lord. The second stanza begins and ends with this command to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And in between the commands to make a joyful noise, you kind of have these staircase of other commands that, that help us know what it looks like to make a joyful noise to the Lord. There are four instruments mentioned in connection with making a joyful noise. First of all, there's your voice, right? We all have one of those that we can use to lift up to the Lord. Some of ours are more beautiful than others. We look forward to the new earth when they're all perfected. The lyre. The lyre was a small U-shaped harp that you could hold. If you ever hear one, it sounds like someone should be telling an epic tale of a far-off land as it is played, right? And it was a great instrument for providing melody in music in the ancient world. The trumpet was not as great for providing melody. When you see the word speak of a trumpet here, don't think of a nice shiny trumpet with valves and a tuning slide like you bought for your sixth grader when they joined the middle school band, okay? Think more of a utilitarian bugle in a, in a military style setting used to announce the coming of a victorious king. The horn is mentioned, much like the trumpet, the horn would have been very utilitarian. It would have been an actual animal horn used to rally the people, to call them to attention. So as we're called to make a joyful noise to the Lord, on one hand, we've got the trumpet and the horn. Those are kind of blunt force instruments. They are meant to make an announcement, to grab attention. Then we have the voice and the lyre, instruments of nuance, instruments of intricacy, but in both cases, whether we're using the tender instruments or the brass instruments, the noise that we make should be joyful. 
So something that Pastor Ben and I have been talking about, I know he's been talking about with those that lead us from this platform each and every week, that Christians should be the most joyful people on the earth, particularly when we are in worship. When we come together as a congregation and we lift our voices, it ought to be joyful. We're not observing a funeral here this morning. This, this is not a place where we're gathering to, to lay someone to rest. No, we're previewing a wedding feast here this morning. We are celebrating our redemption. We are looking forward to the full fruition of it at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And you ought to be able to see that in our countenance as we sing. You ought to be able to see that in our posture as we sing. Can you imagine a newly married couple coming into the wedding reception and the doors open and they say, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time ever, Mr. and Mrs. Brooks, and they walk in and everybody's just like, looking like they're at a funeral. They would say, what's happened to our friends and family? Are they not happy for us? Our posture as we sing as a church should not read, forced to be here, but freed from hell. That's what our posture should say when we sing. Our faces, as we sing, should reflect the words coming out of our mouths. Sometimes we're singing about the seriousness of our sin. But even as we do that, I kind of want to sing, lift it up on the balls of my feet a little bit, anticipating the part in the song or the service where we're going to reflect on the death of Christ who atones for sin. Even as I sing about sorrows that like sea billows roll, I am anticipating the peace like a river. The Puritan William Gurnall says, we are most joyless about that which we are most complacent in. For example, I'm completely complacent in mathematics. I have been for almost 20 years now. I don't like it, and I don't really want to learn anything else about it. And when I walked out of that last college statistics class I had to take in 2004, I said, see you later, math. Off to the theology classes now. Only math I'll be doing is, you know, mark of the beast sort of stuff. I'm not getting involved with any of this anymore. I'm out. I'm complacent in it. And you know what? I find no joy in it. Like stick a math. I heard the term this week, recreational math. I thought that was sick. I was like, what is that? Recreation and math should not go together in a sentence. But some of you were like, oh, I do recreational math. I do it every day. I love recreational math. I'm complacent in math. I find no joy in math. I find no joy in math, therefore I'm complacent in math. Well, where are we with the Lord? Do we lack joy because we are complacent? Are we fine with the status quo? And maybe have we come to forget our first love and not find Christ and his kingdom to be so interesting? And so we are joyless in our worship? We should not worship before the Lord as people who look like they just can't wait to get back to the world. If we know God the King to be the worthy sovereign that he is, that should be evident in our posture and in our faces as we bring our worship before him. We should see joy in our worship. Now, as God's people, we know that we must worship the Lord, but in verse 4 and then in verses 7 through 9, the, the call to worship is also, it's also directed at creation. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Let the sea roar, you see in verse 7, along with everything in it. Let the world and all who dwell in it roar. Let the rivers clap, in verse 8. Let the hillsides break out into joyful song, just like the entirety of the earth. The Apostle Paul tells us that when sin entered the world through the fall of Adam, more than just God's image bearers were impacted. All of creation was subjected to the curse of sin. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul goes on to say that creation groans for redemption to come, that creation groans for the glory of the new heaven and the new earth like a mother crying out in labor pains. But the time's going to come when creation will not have pain, it will only cry out in praise. And even before the coming perfection of eternity under God's rule, creation now reveals the glory of God and praises Him simply by existing. It's not that the oak tree in your backyard has a quiet time each day and sings how great thou art. But that oak tree, if nobody ever saw it or even gave it a second glance, praises God simply by being an oak tree. Most of creation will never be seen by the human eye. The universe is massive beyond really our understanding. The ocean itself, like the bottom of the ocean, is a lot like the deep parts of space. Like there's, there's places in the ocean we just have not been able to explore. So much of creation we'll never even see with our eyes, but it exists, and it exists for its maker. So there are ugly fish at the bottom of the ocean right now that are terrifying looking, and they are glorifying God just by existing the way that he made them to exist. Whether it's in this church on a Lord's Day, or in your car, or at a Sunday school Christmas party where you're singing a couple of Advent hymns, we must join in on the procession of praise we see in this psalm. I'm convinced that most Christians spend too little time singing to the Lord, too little time worshiping the Lord. We listen to too many podcasts, we watch too much Netflix, we scroll too much social media, we spend so much time texting and talking. How joyful would we be if we would just turn it all off and grab a hymn book or get on your favorite Spotify playlist and go out into your garage and just belt out a couple. We'd be far more joyful if we turn off the tailor and turn on some theologically rich Christian music that edifies us and compels us to joyfully praise the Lord. We would be far less dreading and despairing and depressed and defeated if we would be serious just about chasing, doggedly chasing, daily joy in worship before the Lord. And what's amazing is that he's the only one, he's the only king who can procure this out of his subjects. Because the most powerful human ruler can make you bend the knee because of earthly consequences, but he cannot make your heart love him. The Lord does that with us. As he conquers our rebellious hearts, he procures love from us and joy from us. And then we are satisfied as we join in on the procession of praise. Go back to the beginning of the psalm. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. 
We've gotten a sense of the universal uh, call to sing new songs, to make a joyful noise before the Lord, all of the people of the Lord, all of creation. But in the first few verses, the focus is not so universal. It's really, it's about the Lord and His people and how we respond to His promise-keeping love as His covenant people. He is the Redeemer, and we must respond accordingly. So, number two this morning, God the Redeemer deserves a joyful response of reverence. God the Redeemer deserves a joyful response of reverence. The opening verses of the psalm, you hear exactly why our God is worthy of a new song. Because He has done marvelous things. He's done astonishing things, wonderful things. He has worked salvation. He has made His salvation known. You see this in verse 2. Now we tend to jump to thinking about spiritual salvation right away as born-again believers on this side of the cross And that's okay, but the Israelite psalmist is also referring to physical salvation. Particularly, the physical salvation of the people of God being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh in the days of Moses. The Lord's right hand worked that salvation for his people. He delivered them from Pharaoh, just his right hand. He didn't need to pick up a sword. No weapon necessary. All the power needed in himself to accomplish redemption for his people. His holy arm has worked salvation for the singing covenant people of God. Psalm 19 says that the the creation is the work of his hands and that the sky above proclaims that to us. Well, Psalm 98 says that, that we, the people of God, are the work of his saving holy arm. And the work of His holy arm is proclaimed by us, by our mouths, in the new songs, the same way that His creating work is proclaimed by the sky above. Psalmist says His righteousness is revealed in the sight of the nations, meaning that God did not deliver Israel in a corner. He did it on the grand stage of ancient Egypt. Just like He did not deliver His people in a corner, but He did it publicly right outside of Jerusalem recorded by historians who were not even Christians. It was a public humiliation, a public trial, a public mockery, a public crucifixion. He did it all out in the open, in the sight of the nations. And just as he has revealed his righteousness, he has remembered his steadfast love. He has remembered his faithfulness to his people. The house of Israel, God's people that he chose because he loved them, were the recipients of a persistent love, a persistent mercy from God. And by his grace, they experienced what it was like to be loved by a faithful, all-powerful, ever-present God. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness are often mentioned together. They're linked together on 25 different occasions in the Psalms. Clearly the Lord wants us to understand the two next to one another. He wants us to understand that His loving kindness is faithful. It's not going to flame out. It's not cheap romance. It's covenant promise-keeping love and it never fails. And it's proven in His saving, delivering acts which have been done in the sight of the nations, in the sight of the ends of the earth. And nowhere is this more clearly seen of course, than in the first advent of Jesus Christ. In fact, these first few verses of the psalm can be and should be directly applied to our understanding of the life of Christ. 
Who's done more marvelous things than the Lord Jesus? Who else is conceived by the Spirit, born of a virgin, healer of diseases, feeder of thousands, raiser of the dead, crucified on a Friday of his own purpose, resurrected on a Sunday of his own power, ascended to glory, empowering the testimony of the church to spread throughout the world. In the words of Thomas Adams, Jesus is the holy arm of God who bled to death for the life of sinners. And God has made His salvation known by the appearance of His Son in the flesh. He has shown us righteousness in the life of Christ. And in Christ, God remembered His covenant love in the most extravagant of ways, giving us His Son, the pearl of heaven, and a saving covenant of grace sealed by His blood. And anybody who believes in the saving promises of God, which find their yes and amen in Christ, will have their faith credited to them as righteousness, just like Abraham. Anyone who repents and believes, Jew or Gentile, will be a part of God's people. For the true Israel are those who believe God and know Him through His Son, Jesus the Messiah. Galatians 3.7 makes this clear. Know then that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham, who are the sons of Abraham. So the Lord is indeed worthy of a new song, especially from people like us who are New Testament believers, not looking forward and trusting in a Messiah yet to come whose name we do not fully know, but who are able to look back and trust in a Messiah who has come and who has revealed himself. In fact, Psalm 98 is sort of a bridge that connects the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It connects Moses and the mother of Jesus. See, Psalm 98 calls for a new song to be sung. But in many ways, it is a new song based on an old song. And that old song is the song of Moses. The song that Moses lifted up after the people were delivered from the hand of, Mo, of, of Pharaoh. Exodus 15, 12. Just, just track the, the parallels here. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Psalm 98, 1. His right hand has worked salvation. Exodus 15, 16. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Psalm 98.1, of course, his holy arm. Exodus 15.13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Psalm 98.3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in Exodus 15.14 and 15, you see this response from the surrounding nations. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Psalm 98.3, all the ends of the earth have seen. Do you see how Psalm 98 is a new song based on an old song? It's just the, the same truths from the new perspective of the psalmist as he experiences it. But then as you fast forward to the New Testament, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, singing her song known as the Magnificat, and it is a new song based on an old song, which is based on an older song, because she is singing a song based on Psalm 98, which is based on Exodus 15. 
So again, we can just track the parallels. Luke 1, verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Psalm 98, 1. He has done marvelous things. Luke chapter 1, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Shown strength with his arm. Psalm 98, 1, of course, speaks of his holy arm. Luke 1, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Psalm 98, 3, he remembered steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. From Moses to the psalmist to Mary, God has been giving his people cause to sing new songs as he redeems them, as he breaks loose the bonds of slavery and sin. But you must believe in Christ. It's the only way to have the new song in your mouth. You must believe in Christ. It's the only way to be washed clean of your sin. It's the only way to be made right with God. You must turn from sin and turn to Christ. And if you do, He will wash away your sin. He will grant you eternal life. And even in the midst of the afflictions that will come in life, He will put a new song in your mouth. And it's urgent that this would happen. It is urgent that you would repent, that you would put your faith in Jesus, be forgiven of your sin, that you would follow Christ, that you would receive eternal life. It's urgent because the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem promises he's going to return. And the first time it was holy infant, tender and mild. The second time it will be holy judge, eyes like flames of fire. But while the return of the Lord in the flesh, judging the nations, it should cause us to tremble. Something that maybe we don't think about enough is it should also cause us to rejoice. In fact, that's what's in view here in Psalm 98. It's less of a warning. It's more of a call to praise God because he's going to make everything right. And so number three this morning, and finally, God the judge deserves a joyful anticipation of authority. God the judge deserves a joyful anticipation of authority. I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. Now God has subjected creation to the curse of sin. And creation groans with labor pains awaiting Jesus' return when creation will be melted down by the judgment of fire and then restored. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But here in Psalm 98, creation is called upon to cease its groaning and to roar with praise, to clap its hands, to sing for joy, to put a little southern in the Baptist, if you know what I mean. And why is this? Why should creation stop groaning and start praising? Well, the answer comes in the psalm's final sentence, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He's going to make all things right with balanced scales. He will make all things right through the judgment of His Son. When we come back to Acts in January, Peter will preach to Cornelius' family and he will say, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Lord willing, as we go further along in Acts, Paul will say this in reference to Jesus. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is this man appointed? It's the one risen from the dead. It's Jesus. And so creation should praise and not groan because the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised and ascended, will return and descend, and behold, he will make all things new. When we return to Revelation, Lord willing, at midweek in January, we will hear John say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You and I should be like creation. We groan plenty in this life. Our bodies hurt, and our hearts get heavy. Misunderstandings and miscommunication breaks down relationships. Sin and its consequences seem to be all around us. It is not hard to find cause for groaning. But like creation, though we long for redemption, we must cease from groaning and go to praising, keeping judgment in view. Because we know the truth that Jesus is coming back. And we believe in his return as much as we believe in his death and resurrection. And so we should anticipate his authoritative judgment. We should anticipate his messianic rule and reign. We should anticipate the coming of King Jesus in all his majestic splendor when he smashes the nations like a piece of pottery and rules them forever with his rod of iron. And we should praise him as we have hope in his returning authority and justice. The band's going to come back now, and it's time for us to practice what we're preaching here. Immediate application. We're singing joy to the world. Here's what I'm not asking from you. I'm not asking you for a fake, veneer, Osteenian smile. Instead, I'm saying sing with the posture and the countenance of a joyful person to the best of your ability. You don't have to be like David, dancing with all your might. But even if you just tilt your head back and push your voice a little further than normal in order to join in the procession of praise. Maybe you usually sing with your eyes open and you just need to sing with them closed to focus on the Lord during this song. When you hear the words of Joy to the World, it's not hard to see Psalm 98 in the lyrics. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. Fields and floods and rocks, hills and plains being called on to repeat the sounding joy. Psalm 98 is all there in this song. And as you hear the lyrics... And you recognize, oh, that's what we just studied. Let your heart soar. Be filled with joy and express it to the Lord. Join in on the joyful procession of praise. Worship Him as the Redeemer. Anticipate His return. Repeat the sounding joy. Father God, I thank You for the joy of worship a joy we would never know if not for your son Jesus being born, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, resurrecting from the grave, ascending to heaven, promising to return. 
our great mediator, our great high priest, we, we would have no hope of, of doing what we talk about next week, Lord, entering the secret place and worshiping you. We would have no hope of coming into the secret place, remaining in it, dwelling in it, joyfully worshiping in it, if not for your son Jesus. So we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that we would respond with the joy and the reverence and the anticipation that he deserves right now. You have done marvelous things through him. You have shown your holy arm through him. You have revealed your salvation in him. And what a glorious, glorious Savior he is. Emmanuel, God with us. The only funeral taking place here is the death of self, and that's something to celebrate. We're anticipating a wedding feast. We've been saved from hell and death. The second death will never touch us. Lord, let us act like it when we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Joy.